Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Pubs, Pints, People for May. We're putting the spotlight on wild brews and fermentation in this episode. And as ever, I'm joined by Simon Webster and Alison Tafts. Hello, both of you. Hi, hello. hello. And we'll also be celebrating Camera's Cider Month. I don't know why Alison isn't saying this bit, actually. But we'll be taking some walks in the wild and some short postcards from some orchards around the country. Now, very shortly, you'll hear that I get to speak with Jager Wise about her book, Wild Brews, which won the debut drink book category at the Fortnum and Mason Awards 2023, which are really the Oscars of the UK's food and drink scene. It's well worth a look at Jager's Instagram feed to see some photos from the evening and to discover what winning this award means to Jager. Yeah, congratulations to Jager. She really is an amazing brewer and it's great to see her doing so well and winning awards quite correctly. Now, later on, I'll be chatting with Albert Johnson, one of the real rising stars of the cider world. And he provides us with really a masterclass in wild fermentation in cider and perry. So we have a chat about the apple, the orchard and the barn. And once again, we see the return of our resident chef, Christian Gott. In this episode, he's cooking grilled lamb cutlets, new seasoned potatoes, asparagus and his very special Bernays, one made with beer. So Christian's going to be talking Alison through a live cooking of his special Bernays sauce. So this is the penultimate episode of this series and we certainly plan to tickle all of your senses from exploring funky flavours with Jager and Albert to the sizzling aromas of Christian's cooking as well as the quiet serenity of walking in orchards until we're interrupted by cider pup Pippin chasing a partridge of course but that's to come. Let's start with Simon and his interview with Jager Wise. Yes, now following on from last month's episode, which focused on women in beer and brewsters, I was delighted to recently have a chat with Jager Wise, who's the head brewer at Wildcard Brewery. Now we were chatting about wild beers specifically, and if you're a little unsure how wild beers are defined, well, they're produced using a mixture of naturally occurring yeasts and bacteria. These wild fermented beers are the funk of the beer world and how beer tasted centuries ago, before brewing was industrialised. Today they're enjoying a worldwide revival and recipes and styles featured in the book range from the tart and refreshing German Berliner Weiss to Belgian Lambics, Goza, fruit beers and English Old Ale. So over to Jäger for some terrific insights into the world of wild beers. When I first started brewing these kind of beers, I found it very difficult to find all the information you needed to get going in one place. 
So I'd really decided to write the book that I would have wanted <laughs> to have <laughs> when I first started um, the journey. So it is a homebrewing book, but there is lots in there as well about like dry hopping techniques as well and water treatment. Basically everything you need to really get going from nothing. And the whole point of it was to demystify these kind of beers that are largely seen as probably the pinnacle of brewing success. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. Like You can make really great beer with pots and pans at home. And that was the point of the book. Just think about our listeners' knowledge around wild beers. It probably varies considerably. So maybe in a nutshell, what are the sort of key attributes or characteristics which define wild beers? I have made the focus of the book and the characterization of it as beers brewed that are not within the range of the normal Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so a normal ale or a lager. These are beers that are brewed with wild yeast, they are brewed with Brettanomyces, they are soured with bacteria. So we're realming into the world of funk. Lots of these types of beers in their primary fermentation are brewed with Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but it's really how to get the best and the most out of bacteria and, and wild yeast, really. And just in terms of looking after that bacteria and those wild yeasts, what, what sort of processes do commercial brewers go through and what differences would home brewers face? separate everything is the key thing and for me like the theory no matter what beer you're making and no matter what you are choosing to inoculate or if you're not choosing to inoculate if you're being spontaneous the principles are the same across all beer and the first one is hygiene and um, so making sure everything is super clean there is no difference when i brew commercially or on a small scale I like to work on three levels of clean, Phys physically clean, which is um, I could eat off it. I have a chemical clean, which is like a caustic or just washing up liquid that's thoroughly rinsed. And the third is uh, microbiologically clean. So trying to get yourself into an environment that's sterilised. And for that, on a homebrew level, you can use Starsan. On a commercial level, we tend to use paracetic acid or you can use alcohol. Especially when you're working with bacterias and wild yeast, it does have the power to infect the whole brewery. So if you want to do that and also make, I call them clean beers on the side, it's just about keeping the hygiene and keeping them as separate as humanly possible. I find it really interesting that home brewers can actually achieve those standards themselves. The amount that you can do uh, with your dishwasher, with the steam coming out your kettle... It's perfectly possible to do a really good job when you clean. You can stick the oven on and stick something in there, like a glass jar, for example. So there's lots you can do at home in order to achieve this. Your book also includes a troubleshooting section to guide you through what happens when wild yeast and bacteria might get out of control. I'm just wondering, is there one memory you have when things didn't quite go to plan and what was the outcome? Oh, goodness, all the time. The key thing I think about making great beer is knowing when to say this is crap and to say like that this isn't very nice. And, and in order to do that, to get to that stage, you have to be tasting constantly. I put that section in the book of like when things go wrong, because there's not a huge amount of links in terms of even the learning in beer that connects up being able to sensorily detect something that's that's incorrect like yeah. what that smells like but also how it's come about like what are the causes of it why do you have that in your beer the science behind it and also what do i do now <laughs> these are the conversations that happen in breweries up and down the country i can smell i can taste this bad thing shall i pour this down the drain or is this savable so i thought it'd be good to include that generally 
One of the things that makes the Belgian brewers just generally so amazingly great is they really do a fantastic job of coming out with fantastic beers year after year after year after year. And when you get into the territory of Gerzes, they are literally blends. So they're blends of three year, two year, one year, and often some fresh, something young and sprightly. So doing that is a key part of the styles of lots of Belgian and generally wild beers. You mentioned Belgium. Have you had a chance to collaborate with brewers in Belgium or elsewhere in Europe or perhaps even with Mark Trantum, Burning Sky here in, in England? Not yet on the Belgian style. Me and Mark have spoken about this a few times, actually. I'll say watch this space for that. I would absolutely love to go and brew with the Belgians. I mean, we're so lucky here that we're so close. We're a literal train ride away from some of the best beers in the world. So I was just wondering, your interest in wild beers and, and your career as a professional brewer, when did you get into wild beers versus other styles of beers? I'd laid the bame at the feet of the Rank Creek. <laughs> and it's just one of those areas of beer that for me is kind of the professional peak. So uh, Wild Carters Brewery has been going for 11 years now and we started our professional barrel aging project a number of years ago now. I've been doing it at home for a number of years, but I mean, it's one of the things that I've learned over the years, like our barrel hoard is not, it's not the largest you'll find, but there's a really good turnover of barrels and I'm just releasing things really as I want to. The really hard thing with these styles of beers is they're commercially really hard to make work. So there is a little bit of vanity <laughs> but the flavours are so fantastic. And the reason is, how on earth do you cost up something that you've had in barrel for three years? How do you put a value on that? So they can be very tough. But for me, I've got two that have come out in the series so far. I've got um, our Cuvée Cezanne, which won lots of awards, our Imperial Stout, that won Best Beer in the World from the International Beer Challenge. And next coming out is my Flambois. I'm calling it a Raspberry Cuvée. Because it ain't cool to call stuff a framboise because uh, we pay high respect to the Belgians. And I've got my Gerzes, which have been in bottle for about a year and a half now, coming up two years. So yeah, I'm just releasing things as I want to very gently from the project. The thing that I would want people to most take away when they're having a go really is to just do exactly that. To just try and have a go, get some grain and pots and pans at home and just give it a go. It's not as hard as you think. In terms of um, where people can try these beers, can they order them through Wildcard's website? Through the web shop. And we recently just won the best web shop in the UK. So it's a very exciting time at Wildcard. Brilliant. And of course, your book Wild Brews is available from Amazon and all other good book retailers nationwide. Yep, absolutely. Yep. It's in Waterstones. Yep. All good book retailers and lots of independent bottle shops have got it as well. Jager, thank you very much for talking to us on Pubs, Pints People today. Thank you. So are either of you re regular drinkers of wild beers? Alison, I sense a, an overlap with some of the ciders that you're so fond of. Oh, yes. And I absolutely love wild beers. We serve uh, quite a few, actually, in the pub. And they are often uh, sort of on the edges in terms of challenging. But you'd be surprised how much people really get into them and enjoy them. So they can be something uh, that people really, really enjoy. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm still kind of hesitant about i've tried some i've liked i've tried some that i've not liked so much so i always hesitate 
a little bit um, with some of these wild beers. But I must admit, I do like the sound of Wild Card Imperial Stout. It's a 9.5% beer and it's a product of the brewery's Wild Brews project. And it's also won a trophy in the International Beer Challenge, which is obviously a huge honour. It's an Imperial Stout made with Pale Planet malt, roasted barley and chocolate malt for a soft mouthfeel, a sort of roasted nuttiness and a strong hop charge of citra leaf hops, which are added at boil for a firm bitterness. So the description of Imperial Stout with rising tobacco, espresso aromas, body of dried fruit, it, it's one that I think I'd really like to, to have a try of, actually. Mm. Sounds fantastic. I'm definitely in the same camp as you, Claire. I'm a big fan of, of, of stouts in general. That's one that uh, I w- I'm looking forward to trying if I can get my hands on it. But you're talking about stout has reminded me that in May is Cameron's Mild Month. In March, we featured the Stockport branches' mild magic activities, and they've actually been in touch to say how pleased they were with the extra publicity that this generated. Well, that's great to hear because, um, you know, I, I know that um, some friends in, in the area have also really enjoyed that mild magic trail. So so great that um, lots of people are, are finding out more about it and enjoying it. Yeah, and we've heard from other branches which are holding Make Mine a Mild events throughout the month. And as always, you can find lots of exciting activities by checking the events page on camera's website at www.camera.org.uk. Mm, so as a drinker, mild is an ale style that's well worth getting into if you don't already enjoy it on a regular basis. My first taste, I remember, was of Oscar Wilde Mild from Mighty Oak in Malden. And I was absolutely blown away and delighted by how malty, soft and deliciously drinkable it was. As you know, I'm now mildly obsessed <laughs> with Sarah Yu's Ruby Mild as well. Milds that we see these days are usually dark brown in colour due to the roasted malt in the brew, although pale milds were traditional historically, and a few can be found if you look today. With the dark style, look for a rich malty aroma and flavour with hints of dark fruit, chocolate, coffee and caramel with a gentle underpinning of hot bitterness. Despite our modern idea that milds should be low strength and dark, in the past... Ales that were served mild before the 20th century could be any strength and actually started to lighten in colour as they grew in favour. The term mild was actually used to indicate that they were served fresh, unlike the beers such as porters, for example, that would have been stored by maturing in wood and served stale in the terminology of the time. In those days, that word wasn't pejorative. In fact, those dark, matured beers would have been made sour by mixed fermentation, utilising the wild yeasts in the huge wooden barrels that they were stored in. So effectively, milds were a contrast to those popular wild beers of the day. Of course, there are still some great milds around from breweries well-established, like Harvey's, Bathams in the Midlands, Adnams, for example. And there are some more modern breweries like Left Handed Giant, Crouch Vale and Essex Boxcar and Colonel, making some fantastic examples on cask, if you can get it, uh, as well as available in bottle. They're all smooth, malty, caramelly and delicious. To quote our camera author, Johnny Garrett, the world needs more mild. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I mean, a couple that you mentioned there, um, Sarah Hughes Ruby Mild. I can still remember the first time I ever drank that and made it my beer of the festival that I was I was at at the time and uh, and looked for it ever since at every beer festival I go to. But Oscar Wilde Mild is also one of my favourites. And I was, at, this is going to make me sound like 100 years old, but I was at the GBBF when it was crowned the Supreme Champion Beer of Britain. I think that was around 
pounds maybe 12 years ago. And I think it was a bit of a surprise to some at the time, possibly even to some of them at the brewery, um, winning the overall prize, as I recall, but certainly very well deserved. Anyway, last time uh, we were chatting, it was all about preparation for Cameras Members Weekend in Sheffield and hundreds of members gathered for policy discussion, lots of networking. A highlight was a report back from the Inclusion, Diversity and Equality Working Group and much is being put into place to make Camera a more open and inclusive environment, supporting campaigns for equality. Yeah, absolutely. And it's particularly timely and appropriate that our very own equality campaigner, Helen Smith, and fellow cider activist, was presented with the annual Campaigner of the Year Award for their work to create a more diverse and inclusive industry. Helen's nomination spoke of their long list of achievements, as well as being a camera contributor featured on the Learning Discovery platform, as well as here in the podcast. They are one of the founders of the Burham Collective an online publication for and by those working in hospitality. Helen was organiser of the Common Ground Conference, aimed at improving hospitality workers' rights, and played a part in industry initiatives like Hospitality Combine and the Brave Noise Brewing Collaboration. They also organised the Cardiff Cider Club. That really is a terrific roll call of achievements that Helen's been recognised for, and I saw some of the photos on camera's social media of Helen receiving the award afterwards. And it's great to see the campaign formally recognising Helen's hard work and dedication to making sure that beer and cider are open to everyone. And this month we've turned our branch spotlight onto Wales and talking us through the beer scene there for this episode, Stella Sims has been finding out a bit more with the Swansea branch. I'm Dunnock Shanahan. Uh, I do the Good Beer Guide pub scores. I support various people in that, and I'm the outgoing uh, chairman for the branch. We're Swansea Neath Port Talbot branch. Our branch covers a, a quite a large area. Our sub branch recently um, merged back into the main branch, so that's why we're Swansea Neath Port Talbot. Um, our main focus uh, for the for the year is generally the beer festival, and we also run uh, an ale trail in the winter, which currently is focused down on Mumbles, and we're hoping to do that again this year. We run every two months uh, branch meetings or branch socials, depending on uh, who's available. We have uh, various uh, trips arranged. Um, for example, we've been to Bristol recently various members of the branch have gotten together and been to Bristol, we'd probably get down to Tenby and there'd be a few trips associated with pubs more locally as well. You mentioned the Real Ale Trail. The focus is currently on Mumbles um, because we have a, volu- uh, a set of volunteers down there that uh, got the Ale Trail back up and running again. It started its life years and years ago as a winter ales walkabout but they decided to focus on Mumbles because there's a about 10, 15 real ale pubs down there and basically for about a month you can take a card around um, get so many stamps in, in the various pubs. Uh, Mumbles is a nice coastal village. It's, it's basically attached to the end of Swansea. It's got a nice pier. Everything's more or less on the front so it's quite a nice place to, to walk around and drop in for a few beers and a few uh, bites to eat. Have you got any favourite real ale pubs in your area or, or any good famous ones that you think are worth travelling to? So I- immediately in Swansea the three, the three pubs I would generally go to um, would be the No Sign Bar 
which is our current pub of the year, the Queen's um, Beer Riff. It does do ale, but it's, it's, it's a, a microbrewery that's mainly keg-focused, so it does a lot of different beers. What, what you find in Swansea is there isn't a huge choice. So when a, when a pub like Beer Riff pops up, you get a huge amount of choice. Uh, that said, uh, the No Sign does get a lot of different beers from uh, Manchester and the Midlands and the North as well. Um, and the Queen's is just a good old backstreet boozer. Further afield, uh, one of the pubs I do like is the Cross Inn near Garth, which is on the way to Bridgend. Pretty easy for us to get to. It's uh, a microbrewery uh, in the back and a, a very, uh, I can't remember his name, but a very lovely and dedicated gentleman runs that with his family. It's located in a, an old mining area, so uh, you, I suppose you could call it back in the day, it would have been an old miners pub, um, but it's a bit nicer now. And uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a nice nice little pub to visit uh, if you're out and about. You also have various pubs along the way, a bit closer to the border, I suppose. You have the Queen's Head in Chepstow, which is a tiny micro pub. Um, Chapstow's just a lovely town to visit anyway. That's a pretty decent pub as well. Are there any particular brews or styles of ale that are particularly characteristic or popular of Wales, would you say? I would probably say no. I think Wales does stouts very well, but stouts don't particularly sell very well, except out of particular times. So Welsh breweries either tend to be, in my opinion, um, traditional because they've been around a while, or they tend to be carried along by the i suppose the american hop um but maybe more toned down and more refined into a more british style i mean in wales you'd have seen maybe 20 or 30 breweries pop up over the last 10 15 years you wouldn't describe them as traditional shall we say i wouldn't say there's a particular welsh brew anymore you know back in the day you would have seen buckley's which would have been a bitter but you know i i don't think that tradition is particularly strong I would like to see them do more stouts because any of the stouts I do have in Wales tend to be really, really good. Have you spotted any really great up-and-coming new breweries or ones that you think are kind of worth watching? I think something that I became aware of, and this is a mix, some of these are new, some of these aren't, is obviously Swansea has had a long heritage with the Swansea Brewing Company, which started way back when, maybe 30, 40 years ago. And that's still going. The, the founder, unfortunately, he passed away last year, but it's still going strong in, in, in its pub. But what was noticeable when I moved to Wales was the west of Wales, particularly around Cardigan, Fishguard, Tenby and so on, didn't really have a huge scene. Uh, and then three breweries kind of popped up together almost at the same time, Mantle, Tenby and Tenby Harbour and they, you know, in that area they kind of started really making inroads and providing beers to quite a lot of pubs in that area and it was almost based off a model that was happening in North Wales with um, Nantes, Conwy and Purple Moose and there was, a, there was another one, I can't remember it now but they, they have a collective that they work together as well and at one time or another have even owned a few pubs as well so you start to see little clusters in Wales and because it's so hard with distribution to get beers into Wales unless you really really work hard at it and Swansea in a way is kind of the end of the line in some respects to get a further west you really have to be 
really working hard it, it just makes sense that these breweries did kind of organically pop up there's been a lot of, a lot of breweries popping up in Wales over the last 10 years I would say so I don't know what the current number is. It's going to be well over 100. Probably when I moved, it was probably like 70. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting, interesting scene. Um, what you do find, of course, a bit like the rest of the UK, they, they are very localised. So getting a hold of beers can be a bit difficult, but there are a few places where, you know, you can buy a bulk bottles or, or whatever, and you can get beers from different parts. So... But yeah, yeah. You, you you know it, it tends to be local. You won't know about them unless you're in the area. That's yeah. kind of nice in a way, isn't it? It encourages yeah. people to actually go to the places and try the local the local yeah. ones. Lots of pubs I know uh, in England are under threat of closure. What's the situation at the moment in Wales? And with closures and so on, we haven't seen the level of closures that that have been seen in England. We're starting to see closures now, um, but the worry was after COVID um, that we would actually see a lot of pubs failing because of that but actually very few did maybe one or two you know in the Swansea Port Talbot region you probably have the best power of 400 pubs so if you're only talking one or two as as sad a story as that is to the locally from from the wider picture it isn't too bad Um, but we are starting to see some pubs struggling now even in the city centres so um, you know just to give a famous example Brewdog has decided to to close a lot of its branches Swansea was one of them and there's a couple of other pubs in Wine Street which is the main drag of Swansea really that have decided to shut up the Watch government have talked with us on these issues but it's never really been a priority and obviously it went straight off the table with Covid and you know the Watch government did provide support for pubs which was probably it wasn't enough uh, whichever government you, you look at they didn't provide enough in some respects but obviously it's a bit of a tricky one uh, but the Welsh was government did give more uh, comparatively speaking so it's easy to cross the border and compare pub on one side and a pub say in Gloucester and it, the, the supports were, were, were better but again it, didn't, it doesn't catch everything it doesn't catch all pubs. To sort of sum up as well then on just a, a lighter subject mm. have you got any favourite ales at the moment that you've been drinking lately in, in the local area or from local breweries what would you recommend? To be honest I, as I said Beer Riff is, is a brewery, Gower is a local brewery here I, I really do, do like their beers. Further afield I generally be heading something like Tenby. There's a brewery called Great Trees. They're just up the road. Um, and they were set up by an ex-army guy. He's gone the route of brewery first and then he's bought a pub and so on. The brewery is called Great Trees anyway. I can't remember exactly the name of the town um, because there's so many towns in Wales. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, Great Trees. They're, they're a good brewery. I really, really enjoyed their stuff. And he uh, he's 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 a, re- a good guy. So you know you could check out breweries. I, I mentioned that might be another one to check out there. And I think is it Wild Horse? They're a relatively new brewery from North Wales. I've always enjoyed having their stuff and tend to get them in 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 the likes of Beer Riff as well. Before we concentrate on wild brews, though, let's have a look at our personal GBG 
pub choices for this month and why we're only here for the beer or indeed cider. My choice today is a pub which has its own microbrewery attached and where wild beers are a speciality. In fact, I'm planning to visit in the next few days to sample a few of them. It's in South Suffolk. It's in the village of Edwardston near Sudbury. The White Horse has been a regular feature in the Good Beer Guide for many years. They have their own microbrewery, which is called the Little Earth Project, and that's something of a specialist in wild beers using wild yeast and foraged ingredients. I have to say the pub's one of my absolute favourites. It's a bit off the beaten track, but they do have a campsite there, so you can stay and make a weekend of it. And a good time to do that would be in early July, when they're hosting a special celebration of wild beers with what they're calling the Little Earth Fest. And that's going to be looking at mixed fermentation beers, seasonality, local sourcing, foraging of ingredients. There'll be brewers from across the UK talking about their beers as well. And you can even go on a special foraging walk. It takes place on the 7th and 8th of July, but if you can't make that event, I have to say the the White Horse and the Little Earth Project worth a visit at any time. You're in for a treat there, Claire. We've had some of their beers um, bottled from uh, wine casks and they really were incredible, amazing, full of flavour. This month I'd like to give a shout out to the wonderful Berry in Walmer in Kent. Uh, Chris, the owner, he's wonderfully friendly. He's welcoming and helpful and very knowledgeable. Under his stewardship, the Berry has been in the Good Beer Guide for 17 consecutive years. He's got 11 casks on, some live ale and key keg and some real ciders, and he's often featuring the excellent local brewery Time and Tide from Deal. In fact, speaking of Deal, there are some wonderful pubs there too, and it's just a lovely walk along the seafront to Walmer, so very much worth a visit. Now I'm going to take you from Kent, uh, still in the southeast, but just over to Surrey. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, just after the King's coronation, I found myself down in uh, Windsor for the day. Um, didn't plan to pop into the corner house, but it looked such a welcoming pub from the outside with some terrific hanging baskets uh, and some benches outside that stuck my head in the door to be greeted by the sight of around 15 hand pumps with around 10 or 11 serving cask ales. So there was a great choice of beer for everyone from your uh, traditional Harvey's Best and Bass, which was on cask, through to some of the more modern styles, including a couple uh, on tap from Thornbridge. That was a lucky sort of let's just pass by and see what this one looks like then. Yeah, it was just a day browsing in Windsor with one of my friends who was visiting and um, we, as I said, unplanned. We just thought we would um, we would just stick our heads in and it was um, we're very glad that we did. Well, it's fantastic when that happens, a spontaneously wonderful visit to a pub. Um, I'm going to be returning this episode to the topic of wild brews because we next venture into the wonderful world of cider and perry wild fermentation with Albert Johnson of Ross on Wye Cider and Perry. Albert is one of the new generation of young cider producers who have been leading the craft cider renaissance since 2018, asking drinkers to rethink cider. He was one of the organisers recently of the Three Counties Cider Craft Con, which I was lucky enough to be invited to attend. It's the largest annual gathering of UK cider producers, and Albert is a key initiator of introducing live keg-conditioned draft cider to pubs and bars. He's currently on a keg-conditioned cider and perry road trip with tastings and tap takeovers at pubs across the UK. Indeed, he visited us for a wonderful evening at the Hop-In in April. I started by asking Albert all about wild fermentation. Put it simply, we collect the fruit from the orchards when it's ripe. We bring the fruit into the barn, it's sorted, it's milled, and then it's pressed. The juice then goes into the tank. 
and this is the moment where different cider makers will take different approaches for us we um, want to have a native yeast fermentation a fermentation that's spontaneous using wild strains of yeast that gives us the best chance to have a cider with uh, some kind of innate natural complexity a cider that reflects our environment uh, and a cider that could only be made in our barn Um, so what happens is the juice goes into the tank we will then leave it for 24 hours and then in that first 24 hours what's happening is that the apiculate yeast these very youthful zesty excited yeast strains this is their chance to get the fermentation started so i I would call them apiculate yeasts and they are your starter yeast these these strains of yeast will um come into the cider start fermenting off but by about three percent alcohol it the, the concentration in they they can't survive in that level of alcohol so they only make a difference at the beginning the source for these strains of yeast as is the source for the saccharomyces cerevisiae which is the the bulk of the yeast that will do the fermentation is coming from two main places the kind of romantic thing to say is that it comes in off the skins of the apples from the orchard but that's mm. not entirely true it's certainly the case that for some of our strains of yeast they are coming in from the apple skins and it does matter where the fruit has come from and how that orchard has been maintained but equally important if not even more important is the way we maintain our cider barn and the yeast which actually are living on our equipment in the rafters of the barn uh, and are just living with us day to day those yeast are also being exposed to the juice all the way through and that's also a potential source for where this wild yeast is coming from if people are familiar with the idea of a cool ship in beer where where you have your you know in in lambic or in gers you you have this big open vat of wort which is being exposed to the elements to yeast our entire cider making barn is basically one massive cool ship there's a there's a big analogy to be made there yeah so everything all around is constantly uh, in contact with your juice as it's coming in and as it's fermenting so you're really imparting it's almost like in a, in a cheese making in a dairy isn't it yes. those natural cultures that are there are, are really getting involved with the fermentation yeah, it's very very similar and that means that it's important for us to be clean but for cideries, it's not as crucial to be as sterile as a brewery. Um, if, you, if you're a brewery and you're trying to make beer with a, an introduced lab yeast, you don't want to have the risk of other strains coming in. But for us, all of our ciders are a reflection of everything about us. Then they're not us making to a recipe. They are the flavour of that fruit in that year made on our farm. And so for us, it's a joy almost. And to be able to make the use of this spontaneous fermentation from the strains that are all around us in the barn. What happens is the juice is made, 24 hours, let that yeast culture get started. And once you've had the opportunity for that yeast to start propagating itself a little bit and and get underway, we will then take that opportunity to add a small amount of sodium metabisulfite. This is why we call ourselves directed natural fermentation rather than minimum intervention, because it isn't Mm. zero sulfite. The risk is product that you've got some strains of yeast or more more really bacteria lactobacillus or or the Britannomyces yeast strains in too large a concentration in the cider they can be problematic by adding a small amount of sulfite we're able to both preserve the natural yeast so it's it's not too much that it wipes out everything but it's enough that it prevents a bacterial infection in the cider and from that point on we don't have to interfere at all because we've created an environment with the quality of of the fruit and the cleanliness of the fruit and, and that little bit of sulfite where we basically have confidence that the wild yeast are going to be able to ferment out the cider. Sometimes it takes six months, 
but there isn't going to be a problem in that time with an infection with cider developing an off flavour. Okay, so that little little touch of control that you use at that particular stage is what then allows you to be virtually hands-off for the whole of the rest of the process. Then. Yeah, you need oxygen in the beginning, so they have a little bit of oxygen in the beginning, but then they get sealed down, and we don't have to intervene after that point. So we'll end up leaving the ciders for six months, let the wild yeast ferment the cider probably won't go all the way out because the problem with wild yeast well i don't want to say problem but what wild yeast give you is a long fermentation a lot of different strains of yeast whether they're saccharomyces or, or a different form they won't enjoy all the conditions that we're exposing them to we're making cider on a farm in an barn that's open to ambient temperature and so it rises and falls with the seasons. We have very, very slow fermentations between November, and we might still be pressing for another six weeks, but between November, December, all the way through the winter. And so actually a lot of our cider we made last year, uh, and still now the beginning of May, it hasn't completed fermentation because the wild yeast strains, some of them are able to be active when the temperature is 5 degrees, 10 degrees, but some of them will not and some of them will be active when the cider is less than 3% alcohol. Some of them won't be. Some of them will be happy in a very sugar-rich environment. Some of them won't be. It's very changeable. And actually, what tends to happen is you could have anywhere from 5 to 15 different types of yeast active during that six-month period of fermentation. And the benefit of that is that it gives you the opportunity to end up with a cider that has some layered complexity from all the different impacts of all of those different yeast strains. It's a bit, I guess, an analogy is like a relay race. Uh, different yeasts are picking up and taking over from each other throughout that long fermentation and perhaps adding different character and flavour into your into your cider during that process. Is that, would that be Yeah, that, that's absolutely perfect. Uh, and, we're, and we're going for gold every single time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And I mean, obviously, your, your ability to control this amazing fermentation that's going on through that season with the weather, the ups and downs and things is pretty limited after you've done your little bit of control there, uh, sort of quite early on uh, you've just got to be very very patient haven't you and wait for this this cast of characters to add their sort of contribution yes that that, that is the only thing we can do we can wait um as a cider maker you are taught the value of patience very early on we we make the juice we let it ferment and we don't ever want to look at something and say okay we we have to start adding this this cultured yeast or we have to add nutrient later on down the road because the cider's not ready, we have the benefit and we kind of see it as a privilege of just being able to say, actually, we are going to wait and see what this cider wants to be, what this juice wants to be. We've given it all the conditions to be a clean, expressive cider that really tells the story of this fruit. But we don't know what that story is. We, we want to be surprised and delighted by what we get to taste when the cider is ready, whether it's ready in April or whether it takes until July. We're open to whatever the yeast and the fruit and the juice wants to do in that time frame. Another thing it reminds me a little bit of is is like shepherding, really. You're sort of allowing that product to emerge. You're never quite certain how it's going to turn out. Each one's going to be different and individual. You just kind of look after it. Yeah, totally. I mean, with cider making, one of the great challenges is that you only get to do it once per year. So actually, unless you get into cider making very young, you're only going to make 45, 50 vintages of cider your, your whole career. And that's if you do it for your whole life. So it's, a, it's an industry that's really hard to become expert in. And if you want to control every single aspect of what you're making, it's a very long feedback loop to learn about doing it in a, in a different way. 
For us at Ross, we've managed to get ourselves in this style of cider making where we're embracing that fact. And rather than always trying to control every detail, not really knowing if it's the right thing to do or not, the more natural approach is is what just lends itself to cider making and to say, well, the product we're making, in some cases, it's going to take a year from when we press the fruit to when we can drink the cider. Let's just enjoy that journey rather than be trying to hurry it along or be trying to change the direction it's going in. We're always ready to just be surprised by what we're making. And every year, because of how the fruit grows differently in different weather conditions, with different soil conditions, and even with factors that I don't even realise are making an impact on the cider but are, it means that there's always something that surprises us every year. And actually, that's what captures our attention and and keeps us engaged in, in what we're doing. Fascinating to hear there from Albert, just how in tune he is with the trees, the apples, the orchard, and the way the cider and perry responds to the yeast. I feel I should try and get to one of his uh, his events somewhere and, and find out a bit more. Have a look on his website and on his social media because he's he's amazing and a brilliant speaker, as you will have gathered from that interview. So, talking about seasons, we next have some seasonal cooking with our resident chef, Christian Gott from Jersey, who will be sitting down to eat lamb chops or lamb cutlets with seasonal Jersey royal potatoes and asparagus. He talks me through with a fantastic live demonstration of a Bionet sauce to accompany his lamb cutlets. This morning we're going to be cooking a nice seasonal spring dish with lots of components, but it's not complicated, it's not difficult. We're going to make a Bionese sauce, which is a sort of cheeky version of a very classic French accompaniment to uh, meat, chicken, seafood. It's what is known as a mother sauce. It's one of the most classic French sauces that you can ever have in your repertoire. But instead of making it with white wine vinegar, we're going to make it with some beer. We're going to serve some nice freshly grilled lamb, some Jersey Royals, obviously, because of where I am, and some new season spring asparagus. And I'll do step-by-step cooking instructions with the recipe for cooking those ingredients. But we're going to concentrate on the Bernays sauce. In a pan, I've got some beer, and I'm going to use an Oakham Ales beer, and there's a reason why. It's hoppy, it's floral, it's very citrusy. And one of the things that tarragon, the principal flavouring in a hollandaise sauce, goes well with is anything citrusy, particularly sort of anything with a grapefruity note. So I'm going to put that beer into a pan, which I've already got on, and if you can hear me chopping in the distance, I am chopping a small banana shallot, which is the long shallots that are quite easy to chop. I've peeled that, I'm going to put the shallots into the pan with the beer. I'm also going to get my tarragon, and I'm peeling the leaves off the tarragon and I'm going to keep the leaves separate to put in the sauce afterwards but any of the stems any discoloured leaves they're going to go into the beer as well and a couple of peppercorns and then I'm going to reduce it down and what we're looking for here is we're going to make a syrup so we're going to reduce that down by at least a half and possibly two-thirds if you were doing this with white wine vinegar that's going to intensify the acidity Beer isn't so acid, so we're just going to put one little splash of white wine vinegar in there because this is a very rich dish made with lots of melted butter and you just need something to cut through the richness of lots and lots of butter. 
why am I reducing the beer down? Well, one, if we put lots of liquid in, the hollandaise or the bearnaise is going to be very, very runny. But two, we want to intensify those flavours. And the beer that I've picked, the Oakham Ales, isn't too bitter. And I think this is an important part to note, that when we're cooking with things like bitter uh, that are very strong ingredients, if you try and reduce the flavours down to make a gravy or a sauce, if there's a lot of bitterness in there, it's going to intensify and it can get a little bit unpleasant. So if you want to pick a beer that's nicely balanced and isn't too bitter... I'm using Bishop's Farewell. It's a golden ale made with Cascade and Challenger hops. It's got lots of sweet, floral, citrusy aromas. And it's got some hoppy bitterness there, but not too much. Once that's finished reducing down, comes the technical bit. So we're going to get another pan and I'm going to put some water in it, which I've already done. I've got it on to a very gentle simmer and I've got a bowl. Now, I recommend you use a glass bowl. I'm going to use a metal bowl for the uh, sound effects, but a glass bowl, probably for beginners, is a little bit thicker and a bit more insulated. And into that glass bowl, we're going to put our egg yolks. So I'm now cracking in the egg. I've got three egg yolks. I'm going to start to whisk my egg yolks over the pan. So hold the bowl with the cloth, and the water that's just gently simmering, the steam and the heat of the water is going to slowly start to cook your egg yolks. Now, you've got to keep those egg yolks moving. And what you're going to do now is you're going to dribble in your syrup that you've made from the reduced beer, whisking all the time. And you'll see that they start to change colour. should have a nice golden colour and it should start to thicken. One of the things you need to look out for, and I'm going to make lots of notes on this on the recipe and top tips, is scrambling. The last thing we want is scrambled eggs. If it starts to look like it's splitting and look like a scrambled egg, then quickly take the bowl off the heat, remove the contents, and what you can do is you can whisk in just a little hot water. So have your kettle boiled freshly. Try and whisk in a little hot water, and that should relax the sauce, and it should go back to normal. If it doesn't, then the next tip is crack another egg yolk into a clean bowl, whisk that and then pour your egg mix into that and the egg in the fresh egg yolk should help emulsify your sauce. So when that's looking like it's thickened up and it's kind of the consistency of double cream and it's going to have some lots of bubbles in, you're going to add the remaining ingredient which is butter. Now I've already melted the butter down and just let it sit so it's nice and pourable. Now I'm slowly pouring the butter in and I'm whisking the ingredients together. So it's just one hand pouring the butter in really, really slowly and continuing to whisk over the heat. And what that does is the egg yolks are going to mix in with the butter and they're going to sort of uh, chemically, they're going to make a nice... Uh, thicker sauce. It's basically a warm mayonnaise that we're making and that is going to start thickening as we add the butter and we're going to keep going until I've got a really nice pan full of thick mayonnaise sauce in front of me. I'm going to take it off the heat and what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to taste it. Yep. I'm going to put a little bit of freshly ground pepper in there. You might need a little salt. It depends on how salted your butter is, but you probably won't need any. And then I'm going to chop my 
remaining tarragon leaves. I'm going to chop those quite finely and then I'm going to add those into the sauce as well. Stir. Now you can leave that sauce on top of the pan of cooling water and what that will do is that will keep it warm and then you can quickly fry off your lamb cutlets, have your potatoes boiling on the back, throw your asparagus into some boiling water and then you can quickly serve the rest of the dish and the sauce will stay warm enough to serve with your dish when you've got it all there prepared. I presume you get the potatoes going first. Because those lamb cutlets are so quick to cook, you can actually have the sauce sort of already done and got, got that out of the way. Yes, you don't really want to be cooking your cutlets, trying to stir. Um, so yeah, have your potatoes gently simmering sort of for 15 minutes. Have a nice hot pan ready to put your lamb in. Your asparagus is only going to take two or three minutes if it's some nice, fine, tender asparagus at this time of year. The sauce will keep warm enough. You don't tend to eat hollandaise or bionese really, really hot. You just eat it warm. Mm. Um, and it's a very rich, unctuous, buttery. It's delightful. It goes really, really well with fish, like I've said, and this is a perfect recipe, and the Bishop's Farewell is a good match for fish. It goes really, really well with chicken. And you can experiment. You can try lots of different beers, and I was thinking about this, and I know I've said about bitterness, but tarragon's got quite a unique flavour. It's, it's a fennelly, aniseed, little bit of vanilla in there, and I was thinking you could probably do for steak, you could do like a really nice porter or stout. Now, I would probably not use quite as much porter or stout, because again, where we talked earlier about the bitterness, but I think you could reduce that down and you'd get a really intensely flavoured bionese that would be great with a nicely freshly cooked bavette or sirloin steak. This sounds brilliant. So it's quite a versatile recipe you have here. It's quite adaptable as well. It is. I'm all for encouraging people to try and play and people know what beers they like. It's just having that sort of little flavour guidelines. So if you remember citrusy, floral, that's going to go very well with the aniseed and the sort of fennelly notes in the tarragon, which is the classic component and flavouring ingredient in a Bernays sauce. It's really, really versatile. I mean, you could do it if you're a veggie, use your asparagus, maybe do some other vegetables. You can have some crudite and you can use it as a dip. That would be a really nice starter on a summer's day. It's absolutely amazing. That's why the French call it one of the mother sauces, because it's so versatile. And you can add other ingredients to a classic hollandaise, which is the sort of basic where you're spreading from the BNAs. And you can add brown butter, you can add grapefruit, blood orange. I mean, I've got a classical French cookery book, and there's pages devoted to all the different derivations of hollandaise and bearnaise as opposed to bearnaise. We love that uh, addition of beer. Obviously, it's perfect for us. So, Christian, it sounds amazing. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed hearing it being cooked, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to tuck into it now, aren't you? I am. Yes, nothing like lamb chops early morning breakfast. Yeah, it's a good start to the day. Thanks very much, Christian. Really interesting to see Christian cooking with Oakham Ales Citra, which is obviously widely recognised as one of the leading IPAs in the UK, available in many pubs on cask and in even more shops across the country in bottle format.
Now, May is also one of Canberra's cider months. We talked about mild month earlier, but we also celebrate the orchards and trees in blossom and the first stage of the growth of the apple and the start, really, of the cider year. Now, we wanted to finish this spring episode with a celebration of cider month and take you into the orchards by a method of creating some audio postcards from three cider makers in their orchards from Gloucestershire, from Herefordshire and in Kent. So we're going to hear from them as they stand in their orchard with the sound of the bird song and the atmosphere. And this is a trip to the orchard in the hands of their stewards and cider makers. I'm quite looking forward to listening to these. And first up, we start with David Lindgren, who produces Bushel and Peck Cider and is chair of the Gloucestershire Orchard Trust. He's walking us through Waterhatch Orchard, which is an old neglected orchard which has now been reborn. Good morning from Waterhatch Orchard. We're near Winchcombe in Gloucestershire. Uh, and this is one of our favourite old traditional orchards. Uh, not because we get a lot of fruit from here, we don't, in fact we get very little, uh, but because it's an orchard that we helped restore a few years ago. Uh, and it's also a particularly peaceful place, accessible only on foot or down a, uh, a rough farm track. Uh, and it's one of the few places, if not the only place I know of in Gloucestershire, where you cannot hear the sound of traffic. So unless there's an aeroplane flying overhead or the farmer's out and about in his tractor, the only sounds you can hear here are the sounds of nature. It's not a particularly large orchard. There are just 15 or so mature old apple trees in various stages of decline. Uh, not particularly useful varieties, mostly Bramley. Um, but six or seven years ago, we planted 27 new trees here. Uh, more useful varieties for a cider maker and they're now beginning to grow in stature and fill in the empty spaces Uh, so it's once again beginning to look like a proper orchard Uh, and at this time of year of course it's looking particularly beautiful because the apple trees and some of the later blossoming uh, peri pears are in full blossom so it really is a stunning sight there are log piles lying around and some of the trees that have died have been left in situ providing really useful habitat for birds and mammals we're surrounded by tall rambling hawthorn and blackthorn hedges dotted about are self-seeded wild plums and damsons there are a few patches of nettles under some of the trees and wildflowers are beginning to emerge uh, from the grass Uh, And this being a warm, sunny spring morning, the air is thick with insects and you may be able to hear the sound of birds and the the birdsong in the background. And so not only is this a a beautiful and peaceful place, it's thriving, it's alive, it's home to hundreds, possibly even thousands of different species. And to our mind, it's what an orchard can be if it's given just a little bit of uh, loving care and attention and of course, so long as it remains unsprayed. Welcome to Waterhatch. When you hear David describe how important these traditional orchards are to our environment, it's shocking to realise that 90% of traditional orchards have been lost since the 1950s. And a YouGov survey for camera found that 93% of people think that the preservation of traditional orchards is important. And I know there has been some work with encouragement for community orchards and, and that sort of thing, but... 87% of respondents were supporting raising the minimum juice content of cider to hopefully halt the decline of some of our orchards. Yeah, and it's surprising how much cider makers contribute to keeping these orchards in play. We heard David there talking about his orchard. Uh, he also has a fellow colleague, Tim Andrews, who makes wonderful cider up there, works with David, uh, and he's 
tirelessly working to save orchards and you'd be amazed the amount of biodiversity that gets supported by these wonderful old traditional orchards so it is very important that we drink more apples in our cider. Well let's head off to another orchard now and we're joining up with our old friend Susanna Forbes who's recipient of the Camera Pomona Award in 2021 and she'll be walking us through the Little Pomona Cider Home Orchard in Herefordshire where she's visiting trees with different apple varieties. I'm saying hello to you from Little Pomona's home orchard. It's Susanna Forbes here and uh, it's dusk now so I'm hoping you can hear the the dawn chorus, the dusk chorus. The birds are in fine fettle I would say. It's a lovely evening to be sending you this sort of oral postcard. I've just seen a bat floating around there. Uh, Not quite dark. I'm standing in between two foxwhelp rows. That's one of the four varieties we have here. And the foxwhelp trees are just looking magnificent. They're taller than the others and the branches of blossom are just cascading down. It's like having a curtain of pink and purple pom-poms, beautifully fragrant. So I'm hopeful for a good year with the foxwhelps. To my left, then we've got Ellis Bitter. Not much blossom coming through there, hopefully coming through uh, in a bit. And then the Dabinet, maybe half and half is in blossom. Because we are 200 metres above sea level, we are a few weeks later than some of the others. And then on my right, I've got Harry Masters jersey. They're slowly coming through. And just as it's a very fragrant apple, it's also the blossoms pretty fragrant as well. There's one tree that we lost last year in the Harry Masters jersey. But what's beautiful is that there's a little carpet of buttercups there instead. So I feel so lucky to be in this orchard. It's kind of a mixture of joy and wonder at nature, a bit of excitement, but also being at peace because nature's in charge here. We're going to let the weather carry on through. We're going to let the apples and the trees do their own thing. And then I can't believe it how many months it'll be. It won't be that long before we're in here harvesting and bringing the fruit in and then working out what the fruit wants to do for this year's harvest. For now, I'm going to say goodbye to you, wish you well, and I'd love people to come and see the orchards because it's a very special place. So all the best to you all. Cheers. So thanks to Susanna for sharing that wonderful scene with us. Some of those apple varieties that she describes are hundreds of years old. Uh, and she mentions the cult big acid cider variety, Foxwhelp. Now, this is so much loved by some of the big cider fans. And I think that beer drinkers who enjoy wild sour beers and those sharp flavours would love it. This was used to produce cider in the 17th century and these days it's often used in blending to add some much-needed lift to the blend of cider apples. Now we end this episode in an orchard in Kent with Sam Nightingale of Nightingale Cider who creates a fantastic sense of place in his orchard and of course we get to meet cider pup Pippin. I'm walking down Gibbet Oak Farm with Pippin through the orchards. There's still some blossom on the Cox's Orange Pippin, uh, which is where Pippin gets her name from. A fine cider maker's dog's name, of course. The pear blossom has all gone now. There's an amazing looking set on the pear trees. We grow Commis Conference and Concord here at Gibbet Oak. Oh, there's a quail in front. I wonder if that's going to... That's not a quail. What am I talking about? It's a partridge. <laughs> Pippin's uh, looks quite intrigued by the partridge. 
and we're just coming down to the young full staff orchard there's 437 trees in this orchard of full staff red full staff to be exact they're on m26 rootstock and we planted these in 2018 this is our very first orchard that was planted exclusively for cider and over the last two or three years we've been moving orchards across solely for the use of the cider business it's amazing to see what happens when you able to pick the fruit and press it and have that control over it compared to if we're having to buy fruit in and it's coming through the supermarket like through cold chain and pack houses i'm just walking down through the young red full staff orchard such a delicate blossom the smell the aroma the flower size is huge this year i'm not used to such big flower sizes um I don't know quite how that might translate to the fruit afterwards or whether it has any bearing, but uh, it will be interesting to see. Uh, as we're coming down the farm now, we're coming down to... Uh, there's a Cox orchard on my left and the John Gold orchard on my right. So the John Gold orchard we grow exclusively for cider now, which is, again is great. Uh, Pippin's just spotted the partridge. Yeah, we've, I've been making cider here since 2009. We started as Jibitoke Cider, which was with one of my best friends, uh, Dave. Um, and now it's known as Nightingale Cider, which it has been for six years, I think. And the ciders we make are all from hand-picked eating apples and dessert fruit. It's uh, a much more kind of youthful, fresh, kind of acid-driven, wine-like expression of cider it's a different palette of colors in a way but yes it's the way we do things here and it's uh, yeah it's really rewarding to see how things change and how we learn every year and how the cider moves on and the way the cider the big sort of bigger cider family of cider makers and community nationally and internationally kind of helps us to learn and encourages us and inspires us to keep on doing what we're doing and continue to thrive to innovate and grow um, and connect with nature, orchards, sense of place. It's really special and it's so important not to forget uh, that there wouldn't be any fruit without these beautiful orchards. This is a postcode coming to you from Gibbetoke Farm, Tenterton in Kent from Pippin and Sam. Great to hear from Sam there because um, one of his ciders is in fact going to be my cider choice in just a few minutes' time. I'm not a big cider drinker, but I do like one of the Nightingale ones. Mm, they're fantastic, aren't they? Uh, but it's a great way, I think, to end this episode. And don't forget that you can join Susanna at Little Pomona Orchard and Cidery and Sam at Nightingale Cider at his tap room, The Watch, which are both open for visitors. You can find details of those on the Camera Learning and Discover Ciders Tourism page. So just before we go, it's time to call for our last orders where we mention what our favourite beer or cider has been recently well I enjoyed a locally brewed beer from Briarbank Brewing Company in Suffolk the other day they're on the Ipswich waterfront they have a microbrewery and bar there which is actually behind their sister pub a, a bigger establishment called Isaacs and that's where I happened to be I had a pint of their golden ale perpendicular it's 4.4% ABV it's, it's a hoppy beer with sort of floral notes vegan as well actually and Briarbank are also involved with the Ipswich Beer Festival. That's at the end of July this year in partnership with the local camera branch. And I'm really looking forward to this because um, the Ipswich Beer Festival has, has had its ups and downs, I think it's fair to say. So I'm going to pop along and um, 
and uh, carry out some important research for a future edition of Pubs, Pints, People, I think. Also, we're inside a month. I will pick a cider. As I alluded to a moment ago, I did enjoy drinking Nightingale ciders when I was down in that part of the world. So I'm going to mention Nightbird. It's an easy-drinking, sparkling, fragrant and refreshing cider. It's a medium-wild fermented cider made from dessert and culinary varieties. And it's grown, as we heard from Sam a moment ago, on the Nightingale family farm and surrounding orchards. And this one was awarded a bronze award in the prestigious 2022 International Wine and Spirits Competition. Mm. When it comes to my last orders, my my cider of the month is Gospel Green, which is a Brut-style sparkling cider from Hampshire, fermented via the, the traditional champagne method. Well, my beer is Vital Spark, which is brewed by Fine Ales up on the beautiful west coast of Scotland. Vital Spark comes in at 4.4%, described as a tribute to Loch Fine's famous fictional ship, the Vital Spark, and it fuses two worlds together. It comes with a traditional rich, dark malt base, which is charged with New World Amarillo and Cascade hops, and it's a beer that you can find on cask regularly at uh, pubs across, across the country, and also available in bottle format. So my cider picks this month are Albert's aforementioned Ross on Wye ciders and perries that are created for keg. Now these are completely live and unfiltered. So they are absolutely full of flavour and they continue to develop in the key keg just like a beer in the cask. So wonderful. If you can get the opportunity to taste those uh, fresh from keg, then I strongly recommend you do so. They are beautiful. We're starting to see more ciders uh, live being put into keg. I'm very excited to see uh, more of these coming along and being able to serve them in the hop-in. Now, my beer choice this month is one I feel like it's very important that we mention as we're talking about wild beer. And this is Gerza and Lambic-style beers from Belgium. And in particular, I have a soft spot for the brewer that I'm featuring, which is the Boone Brewery. I was working in a restaurant company many years ago and, and when they took over a restaurant company called Belgo, which featured over 100 different Belgian beers. And that gave me the opportunity to develop a training program and visit Belgian breweries. And one of the months that made the most impression on me was the amazing Boone Brewery. And I had a chance to meet Frank Boone, who many people think is one of the people that saved this style. Now, it really is something incredible. He's based in the village of Lembeek near the River Seine and the Special conditions allow them a microclimate where they can create spontaneous fermentation using wild yeasts in the air. So the beer I'm holding in my hand is Boone's Marriage Parfait. Uh, And this is a combination of different Gerza beers. These are lambic beers that have been aged in huge oak foodras, oak barrels. Uh, So as well as being spontaneously fermented and taking on lots of fascinating flavours, they then spend time in oak barrel and develop more character. And then Frank blends these together into what he calls a perfect marriage of beer. Now the flavours are extraordinary. So we get the combination of citrus flavours, sort of really wine-like, almost cidery, citrus sharpness and acidity. We get phenolics uh, from the wood, uh, almost like a sort of whiskey character, as well as the essential beeriness from the brew. So well worth, if you haven't had an opportunity to taste Boone, uh, Lambics, there are various varieties uh, that you can get hold of, um, but wonderful and really special and highlighting these in our wild beer month. Alison, that sounds like a really complex beer and one that certainly sounds like it's worth tasting and a really nice way to to end this month's episode, as you said, focusing on, on wild beers. 
So just as we close this episode, there's just time to say thanks to our volunteers who've helped make this happen, including Stella Sims, Simon Price, Dick Withercombe, David King and our social media team. So while this is a special Cider Month, I guess we should all say goodbye to you in the traditional way with a wassail. Wassail! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.